Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is Dan Taylor. My name is John Licton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education. And finally, just to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Asa for Education, for making this podcast happen. Now on to the episode. Welcome to the International School Podcast. I'm your co-host, John Micton. Dan Taylor is still on the road. Uh, and I'm just uh, looking forward to this upcoming conversation. Over the years, I think many of us who have been IT directors, digital coaches, or even principals or school leaders in international schools, we always gravitate to newsletters or professional learning networks or resources that we go to to get inspired, to get information, and really hear from experts or pundits or people that have opinions that maybe resonate with us. And for myself, and I know for Dan, and for many people that I know, we like subscribing to newsletters or websites and getting that in our inbox. Usually it's a provocation or maybe a focus on something. And one person that I have been subscribing to since, and I'm going to date myself, is the mid-90s, is Jamie McKenzie of FNO.org and Question.org. And Jamie McKenzie uh, has been a very prominent technology uh expert, philosopher, workshop leader, author, and has done a lot of work around the world, especially uh, in Australia, New Zealand, and the United States, and also in international schools. I had the opportunity of him coming to a school in Japan that I worked at. And Jamie has had a very illustrious and busy career. He currently is now in Denver, and I thought it would be so fun to catch up with Jamie and kind of uh, look back on some of the work that he's done and where we are, and also listen to his own uh, reflections on where we're going. Jamie, a real warm welcome to International School Podcast. It's so nice to see you. Well, thank you, John. It's really good to see you again also. You know, it's interesting because I look back uh, more than 40 years uh, to uh, being an elementary principal in New Jersey and uh, getting our first uh, Apple II pluses or whatever and traveling into Teachers College in New York and uh, being in a workshop where they were explaining how these little machines would transform education. And um, we were among maybe a half dozen schools in New Jersey that were leading the way. And next thing you know, we were giving workshops for other people as if we were some kind of expert. But we were we were you know trailblazers, and it was it was a very exciting time. Jamie, maybe tell us a bit uh, about yourself, your little biography, maybe a minute or two for people that might not be familiar with uh, the work you've done and who you are. Okay, well, you know, I um, I went on from being an elementary principal back then to uh, being an assistant uh, superintendent in Princeton, New Jersey, and a superintendent to school districts. But I, um, I really didn't like the politics of being a superintendent. And one day I did a take this job and shove it. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the country and Western song, but there's a wonderful song where uh, he talks about um, being pretty fed up with a workplace and taking this job and shove it. So I actually did that one day. And uh, the next day I went up uh, on top of the highest hill in New Jersey. You can't really call it a mountain, but it's at the uh, Delaware uh, River Gap, and uh, I decided to start the journal from now on, 
And uh, the story is that, you know, uh, from now on, I'm not going to do any more of that. I used a profanity uh, to, to describe the kind of political work of a superintendent. And so actually the name from now on came from that experience of shifting from being um, kind of a warrior of the job, you know, the job of a superintendent is like being a warrior to being much more of a thinker. And uh, so for the rest of my life, I devoted myself more to ideas and, and the promise of educational technologies to transform classrooms. And you have written quite a few books. You did a lot of work when laptops were first coming out in the early uh, mid-90s. You did a lot of work in Australia and New Zealand regarding thinking and questioning. Talk to us a bit why you you were a warrior. And I'm curious, why were you a warrior? Why do superintendents have to be warriors? And that transition, what suddenly made you say, this is so much more important? Well, in many uh, school districts, the um, the opportunity to make changes is impeded by um, a certain amount of resistance. Uh, and so I've always felt that schools should be places that nurture independent thought. And um, so when I would be in a place where uh, there was too much focus on memorization uh, rather than thinking, I would uh, work with the staff to create uh, adult learning opportunities to help teachers uh, transform the classroom practice. So back in the 1990s, actually, progressive education was quite popular in the United States before No Child Left Behind came along and kind of ruined it. Um, so we had a lot of really good thinkers asking, you know, how could we have constructivist approaches to learning? There was not the teacher standing in front of the room, uh, you know, filling their heads with knowledge, um, the old pedagogy, but the idea that students um, should be able to build their own ideas. And so many of us thought that new technologies might be the vehicle that would empower that, especially opening um, the world of information uh, instead of being books in the library, this uh, uh, incredible Um, playground of information that would become available through the internet. Unfortunately, there's always been a tension between uh, the more traditional kind of educator um, and and this kind of uh, constructivist educator. And um, there's, you know, there's been research showing that a lot of classroom teachers um, in the the mainstream educational world uh, really like the control of being up in front of the room lecturing and uh, are uncomfortable with exploration. So um, it's, it's been an uphill journey the whole time. And um, sadly, I still see very little evidence that after 40 years, uh, the dream we had um, came true. I mean, there, there are some wonderful schools, there are some wonderful teachers, but the overall data in the United States from our National Assessment of Educational Progress shows virtually no, no improvement over the last 40 years in the thinking capacity of, of American students when measured on those tests of, of um, higher level thinking uh, for the writing test or the reading test or whatever, the, the numbers are still dismal. And one thing is that's interesting is you start getting an audience outside of the United States. 
why did that happen? What you know, you'd, you've done a lot of work in Australia and New Zealand. You've actually traveled to many international schools. We had the opportunity of actually presenting together at a couple conferences, and also uh, I had the chance of you doing workshops in two different schools that I was in. What what suddenly had you go out of the United States? How did people hear of you, and what 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 did you notice different once you were out in international schools? Well, uh, back um, uh, in probably uh, around 98 or so, um, uh, I did have some readers over in uh, Australia and they invited me to speak at an international librarians conference uh, in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, which was only an hour away from where I was living in the state of Washington. And um, librarians have always been um, about a third of my my audience uh, and I've gone to a lot of conferences with librarians I'm a big library fan I've been a director of libraries uh, uh, I, I believe that good librarians uh, are really important partners in this this effort to teach kids how to think for themselves so um, at that conference in Vancouver I met a bunch of Australians who said would you be willing to come over to Australia and and, um, and help us think about these challenges? And of course, I said, yes, I would love to. Um, you know, I was a pretty uh, ignorant American when it came to uh, the country of Australia. I've, I've now been there a lot of times, but it, to me, it was just this big blob down under that I, mean, I had no idea how many states they had or where the cities were or whatever. So it was a real pleasure to uh, actually go to Australia so many times. And I I found um, a very receptive uh, audience there. I think probably um, they treat school librarians um, better than any other country I've visited. Uh, in contrast, New Zealand, which I also love, actually almost disbanded the professional librarian workforce and replaced them with sort of teacher librarians that were kind of part-time, mostly teaching in the classroom, but kind of handling the library on the side. So. Um, you know, different different places treat different um, uh, amounts of seriousness to, to the job of the school librarian. Now, Jamie, you uh, started this newsletter called FNO, which you told us about how you named it. <coughs> what was your purpose with the newsletter? What were you trying to do? Uh, you had a very large audience. You had a lot of subscribers. What was your purpose in using that newsletter as a vehicle to share some of your ideas? Well, you know, I've always been somewhat of a skeptic about um, some of the ways people were approaching the use of the technologies. And so I, I saw myself as uh, being able to challenge some of the things that I thought were foolish. Um, and, and from the very beginning, when I had those um, computers in the elementary school, there was a, a large uh, movement to use them as teachers. And I was opposed to that. I never felt that the software was uh, effective or good. I felt that it was, um, uh, you know, um, unhealthy for children. So I've, I've been a critic of, of bad approaches to technology. In, in recent years, I felt there was a huge swing towards social media in a way that was um, more entertaining than, than useful. Um, you know, it was this idea that just because you're talking to somebody in another country, it's good education. Um, but the, the whole question of was whether there was uh, rigor and thinking behind the, uh, the activities uh, became, you know, one of my questions. So from the very beginning, 
questioning has always been an important part of my life. That's why I have a website that is questioning.org. Um, and I will be continuing to publish that. Uh, although this is the last month I will be publishing from now on, I'm really going to focus more of my attention to the whole thinking and questioning uh, uh, aspect of education. I see uh, so many of our countries now swinging towards totalitarianism. I see um, fascism on the uprise. I see um, a kind of mob mentality where, where people aren't thinking carefully about their political choices. And, um, and so thinking and questioning is, is really my priority. And of course, I'll keep mentioning educational technologies, but um, that will be my, my main focus now. And is that something you have been motivated to change to? Because you did a lot on education technology. Is with the political landscape that we've witnessed in different parts of the world over the last 10 years? Um, I, I think that's that's shifted my thinking. On the other on the other hand, I I, I see uh, in my country uh, in in the last year I've been doing a lot of work uh, with sporting events and uh, with concerts and um, in the in the in the role of security. I'm now working for the Museum of Art in a, uh, here in Denver, and and I'm finding that uh, Americans are nicer people than the media seems to believe. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really uh, irritated because when people come to a baseball game in the, the Coors Field here in Denver, they don't wear political hats and they're just enjoying an American pastime and they're, they're very positive and appreciative. Uh, when they leave uh, a, a hockey game, 18,000 people coming out, they're all saying, I appreciate you. And, and it's just, um, I think there's a positive aspect to um, the American population that that the media has been um, uh, kind of hiding from us. I mean, they, they they seem to focus on the negative and the polarization rather than the promise of of healing. Uh, and 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 um, I, I I really I've been trying to write about that, and I'm having trouble getting the essays published because the media doesn't seem uh, attracted to my my theme, you know, which is that they're not talking about this other America, which is a, a more positive view. This is really interesting that you're saying that, because I think, especially for people that live internationally, that get the narrative of this polarization, we're not often have the opportunity to interact with Americans in the context that you're sharing. Do you think that also is amplified once you go abroad and you've lived in Romania, Bulgaria, you've lived in Russia, you've lived in a lot of different places, actually Turkey too, we were talking about that just before. What do you think that perception, how does that translate outside of the United States from your experience? Well, um, I have um, actually a lot of Russian friends and a lot of Ukrainian friends. And most of my Ukrainian friends hate Putin. So um, I, I think uh, most people don't realize, uh, you know, that the regular citizens in these countries are often um, quite different from how, how we perceive them in the media. Uh, when I lived in Sochi, one of my best experiences was I got to know the, one of the directors of the local water company. And I actually... Um, got to join his employee group of about 75 people on a May Day parade. 
And afterwards, we went back to an old plant that used to be a water kind of facility and, and, and drank together for three hours. And I was the first American most of these people had ever actually sat with and had drinks with. And what we all recognized was how much we had in common. But it seems like our governments um, get us distracted into these conflicts that the politicians will kind of fan the fires of the, these conflicts and, uh, and drag the people along with them. So I, I feel very badly for um, not only all the Ukrainians who are uh, getting killed and damaged, um, but also for the young uh, Russians, many of whom oppose the war and are now being dragged into it the crazy uh, leader who who completely misjudged the situation and thought the Ukrainians would would rally and and welcome the Russians and and that they really wanted to be Russians they didn't really want to be Ukrainians so this whole you use the word um, we are all a little bit a victim of of media narratives um, who try to explain the world to us and the world is often actually quite different from their narrative. So, Jamie, it's interesting you talk about that experience in Sochi. And I think one thing that maybe we've realized, too, through COVID, we've had a lot of virtual online meetings and we've had community, but there's nothing as powerful as having humans together in a room. And I think that anecdote of Sochi and also your experience just amplifies the importance of regular people just getting together and having the time and space to listen to each other, to really understand each other. And I think it's just so nice to hear these anecdotes that you shared. One thing I would like to take this opportunity with, Jamie, is that you mentioned, you know, you started with these uh, Apple computers in the early 90s in New Jersey. You have been very active and worked in a lot of different international schools. And, you know, we're looking back almost 40 years and it ages both of us, even though we look very young still. Uh, I, I'm wondering, what are you noticing? Has there been a significant shift? I know when you started, tech was kind of a new thing. And if you look at where we've come to, and you mentioned social media, you know, more consumption than critical thinking and some of those aspects, what are some strong points that you're noticing where we've really taken these opportunities and what might be some challenges you're still seeing? Well, you know, I, I enjoyed working with the international schools uh, community because many of them um, have a, uh, a real strong commitment to student thought and inquiry. Um, part of it um, is the whole international baccalaureate program, for instance, is a, a backbone. Um, I, did, I did find that in some places um, when schools wanted to modify their uh, approach to the international baccalaureate program, they were somewhat frustrated by some of the testing programs and uh, feeling that um, when they would uh, ask to be able to change the program, um, there was a resistance to change, which I felt was ironic that a, uh, a program committed to independent thought and, and uh, imagination and, and, and uh, invention was uh, somewhat uh, controlling about program elements. Uh, but uh, in, in general, I found the international school co uh, community to be more committed uh, to independent thought than um, many of the public schools I worked with in the United States, where uh, unfortunately No Child Left Behind uh, actually made it very difficult for schools to focus on 
social studies and science because they just became totally focused on math and and basic skills uh english and um so i i found that my speaking uh, business receded in the united states primarily to upper middle class public schools or private schools where basically their test scores were high enough that they didn't have to um, narrow the, the the curriculum but they could actually afford to teach kids to be thinkers i was uh, i was kind of offended by this because it seemed like only the rich folks could have children learn how to think and i thought that was unhealthy in a democratic society that that poor kids should be able to think also um, and, and part of the the trouble we're in as a country right now is that we have a lot of people swallowing propaganda not challenging propaganda not challenging the narrative of the media, um, not thinking for themselves and, and um, you know, reading something and believing it without asking, well, do you have any evidence for this? I mean, like the whole business of the, the, the last presidential election being uh, 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 wrong uh, is totally false. There's no evidence uh, uh, that anything went wrong at all. Um, but people will swallow these kinds of lies and propaganda without challenging it. So basically, citizenship education has failed. And unfortunately, educational technologies have probably uh, contributed to some of this because uh, people are awash with too much information. And, and do you think then that uh, over, over kind of decimation, uh, decimation is the wrong word, kind of over propensity of devices in the home, the smartphone, the laptop, because you were really pushing. I mean, you were talking about the laptop, but you were talking about it being purposeful and authentic. Do you think we have made a commitment from your experience working in international schools and schools? Has the, have these digital tools really brought an advantage? Have they enhanced learning? Well, the answer to the question is it depends upon whether or not the school uh, invested in professional development. So um, if in many places they put most of their money into the equipment rather than professional development, even in international schools. So I went I went to schools in Australia that were uh, called laptop schools where um, they they laptop the school, but they, they didn't um, help the teachers understand how that might change the teaching of English or how it might change the teaching of math. So I visit some of those schools and find out that the kids weren't even bringing the laptops to school because the teachers weren't asking them to use it. And, you know, there would be some really wonderful classical uh, English teachers teaching Macbeth who said, well, you know, how is this laptop supposed to change how I teach Macbeth? You know, I'm, I have the highest scores in my state as an English teacher in, in how we're measuring performance of students and my kids are good thinkers. They know Macbeth backward and forward. And the laptop has nothing to do with it. So there was there was a I called it toolishness is foolishness that that believing that a laptop makes you a better writer uh, is a falsehood. Um, what makes you a better writer is a good teacher who understands how to use, uh, um, you know, um, mind mapping and and other techniques to change the way kids compose ideas that most writing actually occurs in your head before you even sit down at the laptop. The laptop is a vehicle to transform the ideas that formed in your head into a, into a document. So I, I believe that um, the laptop could empower much more powerful writing, 
but so far there's almost no evidence in the United States in in the writing test, the NEEP, National Assessment of Educational Progress, that we've made any progress there. So, and 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 my my oversimplistic explanation is because they bought the uh, the equipment, but didn't then teach the teachers how to teach uh, writing in a powerful way. We have models for teaching writing powerfully. Um, it's it's the whole Berkeley model of of uh, teaching writing as process has been around for 40 years. Um, but so they buy the laptops, but not pay for the for the um, change in teacher performance and and strategies. The thing that you talk about is this idea that people went and got educational technology tools and they thought that the tools themselves would transform the learning. And why did people think that if already we knew that maybe professional development was the way to go? Well, uh, I'm just kind of laughing because it's, I'm not quite hard. I have a hard time explaining stupidity. Um, it's just, um, it just baffled me, uh, how these uh, places could do this. And it was, it was, I went to so many places where they would just, you know, drop these laptops in the classrooms and expect miracles to occur. And, and, and I'd be the visiting person saying, uh, where's the plan, you know, where's the plan to help these teachers know what to do. And, but they were, it was almost like a decoration scheme. You know, like if if we just have enough laptops in all these classrooms, all these wonderful things are going to happen. And I said, no, you know, without the professional development, part of it was a financial issue. It cost a lot of money to buy all that equipment and um, and and to network and put bring in the Internet and all that. And, and uh, you ended up with um, a lot of school districts uh, and public school districts in particular would um, have a whole uh, IT department of people that had never taught in a classroom. And they they were in control of the uh, technology adventure and they didn't understand learning. So what they understood was security and passwords and, and, uh, and, um, and memory and storage and all this kind of stuff. And for instance, they, they would set up menus um, that, that didn't match learning goals uh, because they didn't understand what was happening in classrooms. So there was this complete misfit between the staffing of the of the of the venture and the the leadership of the venture, a mismatch with the educational program. Um, I was fortunate because when I went uh, to be director of technology and libraries in Bellingham, Washington, they had an educational plan for the technology, which focused on thinking and, and independent thought even before I got there. And as a director of technology, there was a separate department that was doing the the systems part, the the IT part, and fortunately, we were good friends and and understood each other, and there was a there was harmony between the the two functions. But I was in other school districts as a consultant where the the IT people simply ran the show and didn't understand the show. Interesting, yeah, the, and that's I think you even today we hear a lot of anecdotes of that disconnect between different cohorts that are trying to implement a, a strategic change and be it education technology. And there's kind of a breakdown because neither side really understands each other. You know, often educators struggle to understand an IT department and vice versa. And I think that's really still sometimes the case. But uh, one thing is that uh, today we're surrounded 24-7 with technology and you and your FNO.org have kind of 
talked a bit about that, especially social media. What do you think if schools had to pick a couple key thinking routines or thinking regarding this nonstop 24-7 connectivity, what would you hope they would be focusing on? Well, I, I, I think that um, any school that cares about kids becoming thinkers uh, needs to um, actually do a, uh, an assessment of uh, where they stand in terms of teachers' uh, skill sets. So, um, you know, basically, we, we could describe a journey that's probably a five-year journey from the teacher who stands at the front of the room to the teacher who orchestrates student learning and, and where the student becomes the main actor and, and the, the, the teacher is an orchestra, uh, orchestra leader, uh, but, the, but the students are really doing the thinking and the working. So that's a five-year journey for many teachers, whether they be 40 years old or 22 years old. Um, we would ask, you know, how, how do we give them 30, 40, 50 hours a year of, of adult learning activities that turns them into successful leaders of such classrooms. Um, there was a lot of good work being done on that in the 1990s um, by uh, some of my favorite writers. Uh, and, and it all stopped when, when we got into this uh, No Child Left Behind uh, movement, which went on for almost 20 years. It killed progressive education. We had research um, showing what kinds of adult learning activities led to the change in classroom behavior. Uh, and I, I think we should go back and take a look at that again and, and, and ask, okay, for our one school or for our school district, how do we set up this five-year journey? Uh, if, if we care about those outcomes. Um, and so that would be not only what is your skill set, but, you know, when do you turn off the machines and, and, and have a group discussion without the laptops being open? You know, there's times when everybody should put the laptops away uh, for a good discussion. Um, laptops can actually uh, interfere in the quality of, of human interaction if they're open and people are you know, doing all kinds of stuff on their laptop instead of actually uh, focusing in on the discussion. I had, I had times as a keynote speaker where I'd have a thousand people in the room on round tables with laptops. And um, I found that the level of connection with me as a speaker was uh, radically reduced uh, by the presence of those laptops, uh, and, and 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 you know, I I previously without the laptops being in the room, I could I could get up to like a ninety-five or ninety-seven percent concentration reaction from an audience, and I found as laptops became more and more serious, it, the job of a speaker became much more challenging, and 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 so I would sometimes say to people, um, could we maybe um, have this hour a time where the laptops aren't open, you know, and please don't have round round tables where people's or backs are turned to me, you know. It's, it's just some of this is just fundamental human learning uh, strategies.
And that distraction, yes. And, and I know that, you know, for many uh, principals and leaders and even teachers that have uh, team groups and things like that, there's often now, a, a, you know, no device policy. When you're meeting, you turn off your devices or turn yeah. your phones off. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think you, you can see it when you go to restaurants or any social event sometimes. You see, at a, I was at a concert recently. I spent more time looking through somebody's phone than actually being able <laughs> see the stage and i think yeah. that that is an addiction or it is a it's a mindset and behavior that's very hard to break and and you know i think your anecdote of being a keynote speaker and really doing that this distraction uh is something that you know you read a lot about what are your thoughts i mean do you find yourself getting distracted or you kind of have worked out ways to balance you know what what are you, would you say to a teacher that is grappling with this distraction that you you were in the context of the keynote, but maybe they're in the classroom. And it's not that all the kids have the phone, but also this capacity to focus for a deep, significant time on one idea and really unpack it and unpeel it. I think often we hear more and more about that. Well, you know, I, I think that um, there's this approach is more, and unfortunately, um, in many places, in many schools, um, there's an attempt to cover too much material, uh, which makes it hard for teachers to do things in depth. Uh, for instance, if, if you feel responsible for um, four or 500 years of English history and you're in the UK or four or 500 years of French history and you're in France or four or 500 years of American history, um, you're, you're going to be skimming along the surface and uh, it's kind of hard to take out three weeks and do something meaningful, you know, uh, to have the kids explore an essential question uh, in depth and, and actually come up with original thinking. Um, a lot of people complain that kids can now go to Google and download, you know, basic information about a topic uh, that requires no thought. They're, they're basically just downloading and they're not coming up with anything original. So I'm a big fan of original thinking as opposed to copying and pasting other people's ideas. Unfortunately, I encountered a lot of teachers who claimed that when they were in graduate school and they would come up with an original idea, the professor said, you can't have your own ideas. All ideas have already been discovered. And so you're supposed to be going out and seeing what the experts say, and you can't have your own ideas, which I find totally false and wrong. But there is a a rather strong movement to to suggest that independent thinking is 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 not even possible. That your job is to go out and read stuff. Even when um, computers were coming new to schools, um, um, I would have people who would say, you know, I I quoted your newsletter in my paper, and my professor said that um, McKenzie doesn't um, have sufficient, um, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? a jury. You have to have juried papers because um, only juried papers are, are valid and, 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 uh, and truthful. Well, the trouble is when you're a pioneer and nobody's ever done any of this stuff before, there's actually no literature yet. So if, if, if you have to make all your decision making based on what um, college professors have published and they haven't done any discovery yet and haven't even worked in schools recently, um, you know, why, why do they become the judges of what's possible? So I just found that ironic that we're, we're exploring a brand new thing and people are saying, yeah, but, you know, where are the, where are the juried uh, research papers? 
Jamie, one thing that you have done over the years is, and you said it yourself, you used the word pioneer and that you're a pioneer. And maybe some people would even call you a maverick or somebody that really was pushing the envelope in areas that maybe people weren't willing to engage. And one thing is you've always in your articles in FNO.org and question.org. And I just want to remind our audience, go to the show notes. Jamie has put those link there and links and also his books. What advice would you give to young people that are looking at the digital landscape today and reflecting on it and trying to provoke people to think deeply and really question? What are some things that you have learned from your uh, journey about being a pioneer and maybe not a rebel, but somebody that has been comfortable highlighting things that sometimes people don't want to bring up? What would be your advice to them? Well, I, I think it's really important to get some good friends. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, and, and they don't have to be in your school or your, uh, your school district or even in your country, but you have to have, uh, you know, a group of people who are like-minded, who are um, working through some of the same challenges that, that have the same goals, uh, the same spirit, the same soul, uh, you know, because sometimes it gets lonely uh, when you're challenging what's going on and you're you're questioning, you know, it's the emperor's new clothes. And and unfortunately, the emperor is surrounded by a lot of like minded thinkers who say what's a beautiful, you know, like with with Putin right now in Russia. I mean, like uh, it's just amazing to me that he thought all these Ukrainians were just going to welcome the Russians. I mean, what a what a completely distorted view of reality he has. And yet he's surrounded by people who who, um, you know, are are. Um, going to support him in his craziness, and 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 he thought he had a really cool modern army that was going to you know be really successful, but they've been siphoning off most of the funding in, into uh, you know their pockets, and they they had not been properly maintaining the 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 trucks, so the trucks broke down. I mean, it was just this huge uh, disconnect between uh, what he thought was happening and what was actually happening. So back to this strategy of of finding like-minded um, people to support you in your questioning, because questioning is often punished. I mean, the real the reality is when when uh, the school district or the school is going down a, a dangerous path, um, and, and people you know uh, speak up and say, "But wait, maybe this is the wrong approach," they can get fired. You know, they could get um, a bad assignment. There's there's punishment for for asking questions sometimes. And the, but the importance, as we know throughout history and time, is that those questions often have been the silver lining to progress and change. Absolutely, for, for real change, as opposed to virtual change. You know, where where okay, now we have a classroom that looks different because there's a lot of laptops, but the activities haven't changed. You know, it's like so being able to um, in, the challenging uh, is is. Um, part of Bloom's taxonomy, basically, that that the skill of synthesis, which is, um, I have a cat here who's joining the show. Um, the uh, synthesis is the invention thought process. Um, it, it can't occur without evaluation, which is the questioning and doubting. And doubting is sometimes viewed as, as uh, disloyalty, but it should be rewarded as part of the thinking process. 
And that's something that's I think of the past, <laughs> that's fine. That's something that I know you've really amplified in ensuring kids are comfortable doubting and questioning and then evaluating uh, because we have this whole issue of fake news. Jamie, I want to thank you. I, I mean, I, any last reflections, you know, you have had such an illustrious journey and you're still on it. Uh, just, you know, any, Thing that you look back when you first went to uh, New York City to get some workshops on a computer and then today any any kind of ahas or any reflections you'd like to leave us with before we wrap up? Well, I I recently started working in the Denver Art Museum and um, I, I spend a lot of time now with um, absolutely incredible treasures, uh, visual uh, paintings and, and treasures and, and old sculptures and pottery from uh, other uh, cultures and so forth. And most of that work has been created over hundreds of years by artists who are not usually mainstream thinkers. They're uh, people who uh, have an unusual approach to life. And yet schools have sometimes not done a good job of nurturing artists and artistic thinking or inventive thinking. Um, I was looking once again at um, the Pink Floyd song, Another Brick in the Wall. Uh, that uh, song, unfortunately, um, came out in the 1980s, but it's um, it's been too um, current lately because of the No Child Left Behind focus on basic skills and this kind of um, factory approach to education. Um, um, so, so I, I spent a lot of time around these these artistic works that that are done by creative, soulful, interesting people that aren't always nurtured by schools. And I'm I'm hoping that the pendulum is going to swing back because I can remember over my more than 50 years of working in schools times where this kind of thinking uh, was rewarded. It was uh, made the centerpiece of education. We had this thing called the the um, the whole person. Uh, the curriculum was uh, to deal with the whole person. Uh, you know, there, there have been good times in education. Um, and, and I'm hoping that the pendulum is going to swing back towards that kind of progressive approach uh, to education. And, and people have to look for like-minded um, teachers and educators to join them in making that pendulum swing. Because um, I think they've been um, uh, kind of downtrodden for the last 20 years. And it's time to get back together with other like-minded people and, and remind people that, um, you know, children are um, treasures and we need to treat them um, as independent thinkers with this kind of artistic possibility. Jamie, thank you so much. I just want to remind our audience, uh, FNO.org is the website, question.org is the newsletter and website. And you can find Jamie online. Jamie McKenzie, thank you so much for joining International Schools Podcast. Uh, look forward to keeping in touch and really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your journey today. Thanks, John. It was a real pleasure. Take care now. Thank you.